Uh, I'd like to thank you all for asking me here today. It's a real pleasure and privilege to talk to you about the OED, the job that I do, and um, how we got from the last century, or probably the century before, to where we are now. Uh, my name's Fiona McPherson, and I'm a senior editor with the Oxford English Dictionary, working specifically on new words. Um, and as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from round these parts. <laughs> I know it's subtle, but some of you will have spotted that. Um, I moved to Oxford nearly 17 years ago uh, to take up a job on the OED. This was after completing an MA in uh, English Language and Literature at Glasgow University. And then I worked for Chambers Dictionaries, I, maybe I should whisper that, uh, for two years, where I guess you could say I cut my lexicographic teeth. Uh, my accent also gives some rather mischievous journalists the opportunity to remark upon the irony of a Scot writing the English dictionary. Yeah. Um, I tend not to comment, but this is, this is actually just one of the ways in which the work that we're doing now carries on the traditions of the early editors. James Murray, that great man, um, probably the most famous editor of the OED, was from Hoyek, um, although that's probably where I'm going to stop the comparisons because I don't have such an impressive beard and, well, I'm really not worthy, as you'll probably see from some of his accomplishments soon. So the OED was born, if you like, in the second half of the 19th century, but it was by no means the first English monolingual dictionary. That distinction belongs to the 1604 table alphabetical, which was compiled by a man called Robert Caudry. I think it's important to look at these so that you can understand the context of which the, um, the OED came into, really. Um, this was, uh, a, as it says, the first Eng monolingual English dictionary published in 1604. Um, its full title, and this will take me some time to read, but I think um, it gives you an idea, in case nobody can read it. Its full title gives an idea of some of the rationale behind its compilation and then publication. It was, <clears throat> a table alphabetical containing and teaching the true writing and understanding of hard, usual English words, borrowed from the Hebrew, Greek, Latin or French, with the interpretation thereof by plain English words gathered for the benefit and help of ladies, gentlewomen, or any other unskillful persons. <laughs> mm. Quite. I'm not saying. I'm not going to say. Whereby they may the more easily and better understand many hard English words, which they shall hear or read in scriptures, sermons, or elsewhere, and also be made able to use the same aptly themselves. It doesn't really trip off the tongue, <laughs> I have to say. The publication only stretched to about two, two and a half thousand words, although it did spawn a few further editions, and it really did contain many obscure words, the hard words, if you like, of the expanded uh, title. Rather interesting as well who it was aimed at, the unskillful persons and uh, you know, ladies and gentlewomen. Um, maybe it was some kind of improvement exercise, I don't know. You can just imagine the horror nowadays, though, if a dictionary was published with that same stated target audience. I, I don't think it would probably get past, well, the first, um, the first suggestion, really. But other dictionaries did follow throughout the 17th and into the 18th centuries, and here are just a few of them. I don't think they're particularly um, significant, but it just shows that this was beginning to become quite a big business. We have one, again, for in, in hard English words. So the real the, the sort of rationale behind them all was to try and explain <coughs> those difficult words. It wasn't to include the words of the language particularly. It was to try and help people understand these difficult words. 
So they all restricted themselves to that. Um, but there were also ones dealing with particular subject areas. The 1708 one um, at the, on the right-hand side um, is a specific law dictionary. Um, so you could buy it, well, some people could buy them all. I'm not quite sure how available they would be to the, the ordinary person in the street. Um, but it was, we were beginning to see a lot of publications of uh, the words from our own language. The most famous dictionary up until the, at this point was probably the one published in 1775. It was a dictionary of remarkable influence on all of the dictionaries that followed. And I'm talking, of course, about Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language. Um, as all students are told, it's very important to write a plan of any essay that you're about to undertake. And Johnson, I think, was a pioneer of this idea. He set out his aims and methodology for his dictionary um, as early as 1747 in his plan of a dictionary of the English language. But the dictionary itself wasn't completed until 1775 when it was published. It took nine years to complete, although Johnson rather ambitiously estimated that he would finish it in three years. We'll probably come back to that idea of people thinking the dictionary is going to be finished quicker than it actually is uh, later on. I think there's definitely something to say about that. But what seems remarkable about this dictionary is that Johnson wrote it almost single-handedly. Um, he only had a few helpers. And for 43,000 words in two volumes, even nine years, that's, that's not bad going, really. Uh, it probably puts, therefore, his definition of lexicographer into perspective. It's one of the, the most famous things that he said, I think. Um, this is uh, a screenshot of his actual dictionary and um, in there is the definition for lexicographer and it says, a writer of dictionaries, a harmless drudge that busies himself in tracing the original and detailing the signification of words. <laughs> so that's what I do, I guess I'm a harmless drudge. Uh, he also seemed to take his job very seriously though. Uh, whether it brought him much joy, I think you have to wonder. Something else he said was, it is the fate of those who toil at the lower employment of life to be exposed to censure without hope of praise. Among those <coughs> unhappy mortals is the writer of dictionaries. Every other author may aspire to praise, the lexicographer can only hope to escape reproach. <laughs> I'm happy to say that we do all hope and strive to escape reproach by doing our jobs well, but I think we are a, a little bit happier than he seemed to have been. Now, he was undoubtedly a pioneer in dictionary making, and many of his methodologies um, <coughs> form the basis of modern historical lexicography, but there are some quite important divergences. One of the basic tenets to which we lexicographers um, adhere is that our definitions are descriptive. We don't ever tell anybody what they should say, we merely say what people do say, giving advice where that might be appropriate. So don't use this in front of your granny, or you know, <laughs> use this maybe if you're down the pub with your friends, something like that. But we also never betray any personal feelings that we might have to some of these words. I mean, we're only human. There are words which we perhaps like less than others, but that's not, that's not our job to impart that to people reading. We've got to remain you know, very, um, just one step back from it all really. So we're scrupulous in our attempts to do this and the idea is that the reader goes away enlightened and knows exactly what the word means and that goes for any of our dictionaries whether it's a pocket dictionary or whether it's the 20 volume second edition OED. So it's anathema then for our editorial policy to, to allow us this kind of personal commentary but Johnson he didn't really seem to worry too much about that and you'll understand if I express some kind of faux outrage at his definition of oats. Oats, a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports them. 
I'll just take a moment to recover, I think, from that. Uh, there are other ones which are less, um, well, critical is maybe not the word, but less critical about my, my race. But um, this shows that this was a little bit of his own, I think, personal feeling towards um, a particular uh, community, shall we just say, and leave it at that. But whatever his curiosities and the influence, his influence really can't be <coughs> underestimated. The compilers of the first edition of the OED, when that came along, were able to use his dictionary as a word list. Um, if a word was included by Johnson in his dictionary, then it really did encourage the OED editors to include it in theirs. In fact, the sheer elegance of many of his definitions, maybe not this one, so impressed James Murray uh, that he, some of them were actually reproduced wholesale in the dictionary. Um, they were always marked with the letter J to show that this is one of Johnson's definitions because he really felt that they, they the elegance of them just couldn't be improved upon. But perhaps even more importantly, some of the uh, quotational evidence that supported many of his definitions were also of great use to the OED editors. Not only the examples they included from some of the great literary figures, so you can see here that there's um, something from Shakespeare. Um, he and Locke and Swift, he also uh, included uh, quotations by Milton. I mean, you name them, they were, if, they'd, if they'd published, they would have been in there. But also, he did do some of his own illustrative examples, and they were of great use to the reading <coughs> as well. In any potted history, as I'm doing of dictionaries, it would really be, be disingenuous not to mention our cousins over the water. And Webster published his famous dictionary in 1828. Uh, Noah Webster, it's the American Dictionary of the English Language. Uh, the second edition followed in about 1840. It wasn't his first dictionary, uh, but it definitely was his most comprehensive one. It had around 70,000 entries, so we're already seeing that the dictionaries are getting larger uh, as time progresses. Um, but also, perhaps more importantly, it contained American spellings, so colour without the extra U, well not extra U, actually the U at the end, centre, spelled differently as well, because he, this reflected his work as a spelling reformer, thinking that English had rules which didn't really uh, make too much sense and he wanted to reform the spelling, and this is what forms the basis of modern um, American English spelling. It, it does now enjoy a real honoured place, and he does, in the history of American English, but um, initially it wasn't especially successful, and he did die before his <laughs> lexical, lexical exploits were fully recognised. But um, nonetheless, it does stand as a testament to, to his, his work and devotion. So what about the OED then? Well, a man called Richard Chenevix Trench, who was a poet, philologist, and... Dean of Westminster Abbey, later to become the Archbishop of Dublin, he presented two papers called to the Philological Society of London in November 1857, and they were entitled On Some Deficiencies in Our English Dictionaries. You can see here is a facsimile, picture of the facsimile of, um, of one of them. And he highlighted some problems that, as he saw it, and he wasn't alone, with the dictionaries that we already had. <coughs> These are just a few of them listed here. They had incomplete coverage of obsolete words. There was an inconsistent coverage of families of related words, wrong dates given for the earliest uses of words, inadequate distinction among synonyms, insufficient use of good illustrative quotations. I mean, the list did go on. Um, so I think the feeling was that something had to be done. Um, the members of the Philological Society decided that the, the existing ones were just incomplete and deficient, and really it was time for a complete re-examination of the language from Anglo-Saxon times onwards and not just focusing on these difficult and obscure words which previous dictionaries had done. 
they were under no illusions at the, that this was an ambitious project. I mean, but I think even they didn't realise the full extent of the work that they were undertaking or how long, in fact, it would take to get to the final result. Once the green light was given, uh, the project proceeded rather slowly after the Society's first grand statement of purpose. And early editors included people like Herbert Coleridge. He was a barrister, philologist and polymath, and he worked on the dictionary in some form or another until his death. There was also a slightly more eccentric one, Frederick Furnival, uh, who was another barrister and philologist, and he was a very enthusiastic <laughs> oarsman, as you can see from the picture um, there containing him. It wasn't really, though, until 1879 that things got going, uh, when a deal was made with Oxford University Press and James Murray was appointed as editor. Another beard. Uh, James Murray, as I said before, he was born in near Hoyk in the Scottish Borders. He wasn't a barrister, but he was a former bank clerk, teacher, polyglot, and an amateur philologist. A lot of the stuff that he came to know was still, he was self-taught. Um, here are just some of his accomplishments. So he could speak Italian, French, Catalan, Spanish and Latin, and Portuguese, Provencal and various <coughs> dialects, Dutch, German and Danish. Oh, Anglo-Saxon and Mesogothic too. Celtic, Slavonic and Russian. Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic and... I can't remember that. That's it, right. There were so many I wasn't exactly sure where I would stop there. So he was pretty well placed, I think, to take over the reins of this prestigious project and to see it to fruition. The projection then, in 1879, was that there would be a four-volume dictionary. It would comprise 6,400 pages and would include all English vocabulary from the early Middle English period, that's about 1150 AD, onwards, plus any some earlier words if they were shown to have carried on into the Middle English period. So not purely Anglo-Saxon words, but as long as they had carried on in some way into the Middle English period, then the attempt would be made to cover those as well. It was estimated that it would take 10 years approximately and would probably cost about £9,000. It would be published in a series of slim volumes, which were called fascicles. And due to the size of the undertaking, often a single fascicle would not encompass one whole letter. I mean, as you, it sounds obvious, but as you can imagine, some letters are bigger than others, so they wouldn't all fit in the one slim fascicle. Five years into the project, Murray and his colleagues had only reached as far as the word ant. <laughs> <laughs> and they did start at eight. Um, I think they then realised this is going to take a little bit longer than we thought. Um, it's back to the whole Johnson thinking he was going to take three years. Um, so really it was time to reconsider the initial schedule. Um, it's not really that surprising. Uh, not only are the complexities of the English language you know, formidable, but it never stops evolving. And what you have to remember is that <coughs> Murray and his dictionary colleagues, they were having to keep track of new words coming into language and new senses of existing words, but at the same time that they were trying to examine the previous seven centuries worth of the language development. So it's not really that surprising that uh, 10 years was a little bit ambitious. So how did they actually go about compiling all this information? Well, they appealed to the public. 
about 100 years before the idea of crowdsourcing, and indeed the word crowdsourcing, became flavour of the month, Murray had already embraced this idea and he appealed to potential readers from people who were actually using the language, so people like us all sat here today. He made various appeals um, where he asked uh, people to be designated books. So he told people about books that he thought would show a good um, understanding and good examples of words in English. And to, he asked people to send those examples in, any words that they encountered. He realised, though, quickly that it wasn't, that wasn't really going to be enough and that he would need help on specific words, perhaps words where he knew that there was earlier evidence for them or perhaps later evidence for them. So he would issue various requests throughout the years um, for nearly 60 words initially in the range abacist to abnormous. It's a very, very small range of words in Notes and Queries, that the journal Notes and Queries. Um, and then he, he created a series of pamphlets after that as well, which were issued over the course of about 17 years, asking for help with particular words. And these were reprinted not just in Notes and Queries, but in a variety of journals, so that he could reach as large an audience as possible. And appealing to the public for assistance in, in this, not exactly in this way, but in you know, similar ways, has been a feature of what the OED has done ever since. So the core of the dictionary was based on pieces of paper, which we call slips. And they measure six by four inches, and they give all the information that's needed on the documentation of a particular word. And here's something you probably can't read it, but I'm going to read it for you, don't worry. Um, this is one of these slips. This is for the word set, uh, set verb, which, um, uh, well, the noun is sort of famous for being the entry in the OED which has the most number of senses, although since we've started revising, this has actually been usurped by the word run, which now has 270 main senses in the verb. Um, set hasn't been revised yet, so it may yet you know, regain its place as number one, but um, it, it, it's no longer there. Now, you can probably see the top, well you probably can't see, but the, the top left-hand corner contains um, the word set with a V after it to show that this is set verb. We then have a date um, beside, which is 1540, and it's a, from a work by Edward Hall, and the quotation reads, during which sickness, as Octors write, he caused his crown to be set on the pillow at his, at his bed's head. And these kind of slips are still used by um, editors today. Even although we've moved into the electronic age, we still have, uh, we have a quotations room which is filled of, with cabinets um, which contain millions of these slips. There's just one tiny little, that's one tray within one drawer of one filing cabinet. Um, they're really important for us because it means that words which are already in the dictionary, if we need to check one of the quotation, um, quotations that are already there, we can go and look and we can see exactly why what was written was written. Um, it also means that any words which we consider for inclusion and decide there's not enough evidence for it yet, we can put them in there and if ever we want to reevaluate that evidence, it's all there for us. We don't have to refind it. Um, and one question when anybody ever sees these is, is it a fireproof room? I'm, I'm glad to say that yes, it is a fireproof <laughs> room because that would just be awful, really. To think, I don't want you to think about that. Uh, one of the more famous or perhaps infamous contributors um, to the dictionary um, under Murray was uh, Dr. William Minor, who some of you will perhaps be familiar with. Um, for those of you not, M Dr. Minor was uh, an American citizen 
who came over to Britain and he shot someone um, and was declared insane, I believe, and was committed to Broadmoor. Now, he was a great uh, lover of books and especially antique books. So he had quite a collection and this is, he would spend his time in his cell reading them. And I think the story goes that he came across one of the pamphlets that James Murray um, had put out there appealing for readers and this really seemed to suit him. So he would contribute a lot of evidence to James Murray and they built up quite a correspondence. He always, for reasons which of course we can understand, always turned down any invitation to come to Oxford and meet James Murray. Um, <laughs> Which always puzzled Murray, I think, because he was such a prolific contributor that he really wanted him to come to Oxford to see where it was all happening and, and also to meet him in person. So Murray decided to go, if you know, he wouldn't come to him, he would go and see him. And it's perhaps slightly romanticised, but the idea was that he turned up at Broadmoor, uh, was shown inside and then met whoever, the governor or whoever, whatever that position might have been at the time, and said, ah, you must be Dr Minor. And the governor said, no, um, I'll just go and get him. And he brought him in. And for the, that, apparently the first time Murray realised that this person was actually an inmate at the hospital <laughs> rather than the head of it. But nonetheless, evidence is evidence. And, you know, it, it, the, the, the contribution that Minor made is, is definitely a significant one. And if you're interested, Simon Winchester wrote a book called The Surgeon of Crowthorne back in 98 now. Um, and that basically documents his life story. Um, so the work which Minor never got to come and actually look at was conducted within a scriptorium, <coughs> which looks a little bit more austere than the modern offices that we're used to now. And it's really a writing room. Um, it was specifically a room in a religious house, usually for set aside for the copying of manuscripts. But this is where Murray did the majority of his work um, on the dictionary. As I'd said, the, the publishing model that they followed was one of serialisation in these slim fascicles. And the first one eventually was published in 1884. Uh, it covered all the words from A to Ant, and it was 352 pages. Um, and <coughs> it must have been a great relief to actually get the first one published, given that it had taken that bit longer than um, was originally thought. Now, this carried on then throughout the years, but James Murray may have been <coughs> the first editor, but of course no man is an island, and we have a he had a team of senior editors who would work alongside him, helping him to create the dictionary. One of which was Henry, Henry Bradley. He was the son of a Nottinghamshire farmer, and he became, at some point, president of the Philological Society. William Craigie, who was another Scot, this time from Dundee, he also worked on the entries, as did C.T. Onions. Um, and all of these senior editors worked steadily, producing fascicle after fascicle, until in April 1928, the last one of these was published. And the dictionary was then published under a rather imposing name of a new English dictionary on historical principles. Again, it doesn't really trip off the tongue. The final figures were as follows. It took 49 years' work, not 10, so actually it, it was worse, if you like, than Johnson's um, overestimation. It was 10 volumes, not four, so it was more than double the size that was originally thought. It was 15, well, nearly it was 15 and a half thousand pages long, rather than the nearly six and a half thousand that had originally been um, forecast. 
contained over 400,000 words and phrases, so this is a lot bigger than any of the dictionaries that we've already seen in existence, and had approaching two million quotations showing the <coughs> words that were being defined in actual use. Sadly, Murray didn't live to see the completion of his great work because he died in 1915, <coughs> but the work of his senior editors carried on after his death. But the work to which he devoted his life uh, represents an achievement that was really unprecedented in the history of publishing anywhere in the world. When you consider the times that they did it in and the resources that they would have had available to them, it's, it's a miracle, really. And the dictionary had really taken its place as the ultimate authority on the English language. But of course this wasn't the end, because language moves on, and work did carry on, even almost as soon as the last fascicle was published, and a supplement to the dictionary was published in 1933, so that's only about five years after it. It contained new words, and it also contained some revisions to the work that had already gone on, perhaps in the way of extra evidence for the material that had already been published. And also about this time, the original dictionary was reprinted in 12 volumes, so it was all bound, and the work was given its title formally that we now know it as, the Oxford English Dictionary. Four more supplements followed throughout the 1770s, where more scientific and technical language were added. I mean, as you can imagine, in the 20th century, the leaps and bounds that were being made in science and technology meant that none of these words would have been in the original dictionary. Um, so it was important for us to, to make sure those were covered. And also the scope of the dictionary was broadened as well. So we can included considerably more words from North America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, South Asia, and also the Caribbean. People were able to travel much more than they would have been before. So people were coming across words for unfamiliar concepts, um, for you know cooking terms, flower and fauna, that, that kind of thing. And... Um, Therefore, these words obviously had an impact on the English language and therefore had to be recorded uh, as they should be in, in a dictionary documenting the language. So in the 1980s, Oxford University Press had to debate how they were going to bring this monumental dictionary into the modern age. It became clear that the traditional methods of compiling entries, even the, the modern versions of how, of how Murray would have done it, they would have to be updated because that really wasn't going to be sustainable in a modern world. And the source material that was important got transferred from paper to some kind of electronic medium. The enterprise was also going to change because now lexicographers were not going to be enough. They were going to have to be uh, project managers and systems engineers so that this could be managed while the, excuse me, the lexicographers obviously carried along doing their business. So the press duly set about this with the formation of the new Oxford English Dictionary <coughs> Project in 1984. Um, the objective that the team were given was to publish an integrated print edition in 1989, so that was five years' time, uh, and that would integrate the first edition with all of the various supplements that had been published throughout the years to form one big dictionary. Um, and this, if they provided a full and electronic text, this could form the basis of any future revision and expansion of the dictionary should that decision be made. This was cutting edge at the time. <laughs> Doesn't really seem like it. Uh, actually, the person, the second in from the right is John Simpson, who's um, our current chief editor, although soon to be uh, retiring. Um, and these are the kind of machines that were used for the OED. Um, 
they were bespoke computer systems and they were built for pre-processing the text um, as well as editing it into an electronic form. It was marked up in a very novel language at the time, SGML, an encoding system, and the pages of the previous dictionary edition and all of the supplements were typed again by 120 keyboarders, which must, well, took a long time. Um, and more than 50 proofreaders had to check the results of their work. The lexicographers would review, correct and edit this new electronic dictionary and about 5,000 new words were added and as well as new words and senses to the existing 400,000 definitions which had previously been expressed in 60 million words. So there's a lot of work going on. And I'm very happy to say that it came in on time. The second edition was published in 1989 as the schedule um, dictated and it brought together the first edition, all the various supplements, and these extra 5,000 new words. Came in at 20 volumes. Um, so quite a weighty addition to anyone's uh, dictionary, anyone's bookshelves. Um, to 21,000 pages, uh, this comprised. So quite an undertaking. But again, as with any dictionary, as I've said, the work is never done. The language is still constantly changing and this is no exception um, for the OED. Only four years after this was published, the decision was made to bring out some more supplements, like the ones that Murray had done. Two came out quite quickly, followed by a third one in about a few years' time. Uh, they were worked along the same principles. There were new words being added, as well as some extra information and material on the words that already existed, so completely mirroring what these supplements had done the first time around. Then in the mid-1990s, the bold decision was made to embark upon a full and thorough revision of the OED. It would be the first time that the text that Murray and his editors had written would be updated. So we're not just talking about new, um, new words, we're talking about actually editing the text, the definition text that he had done. This is, I guess, our version of the scriptorium, which looks a little bit more modern. Um, there's 70 in-house lexicographers working on the project, researchers <coughs> included in that, and systems engineers. We still need the people who know about the computers. Uh, we've got at least 300 specialist advisors. <coughs> when you're being asked to prepare entries and edit entries on a subject area that really isn't something you know that much about, it's really important that we have specialist advisors who can tell us if what we're actually saying does make sense and, and, and you know, would be how someone in that field would actually understand the word. And we also have numerous external contribu contributors, people who send us material in, um, it, it, it carrying on again the whole crowdsourcing aspect of the OED. Uh, that never stops and I think it's important that that never stops. Then followed what I think is the most significant development in the OED's history, certainly since the decision was taken some 150 so years ago to actually embark upon the project. In 2000, OED Online was born. It became viewable online on a subscription model for the first time, and every quarter a revised portion of the dictionary as well as new words are published. This just shows you the home screen where you can um, search the dictionary <coughs> if you have a subscription for it. It may seem like worlds away from what Murray was doing, but actually, uh, aside from the fact that computers <coughs> and the internet were things that he could never even possibly have dreamt of, actually it mirrors what he's doing almost exactly. 
The medium, very different, but in effect we're publishing the electronic version of these fascicles. From the current editor's point of view, it offers us a chance to get our, the fruits of our research out there much more quickly. When I started work there, we were working towards a deadline at some point in the future when the dictionary would be finished. The great analogy that I used to use was the fourth rail bridge being painted. Once you get to the end, you know, you have to start again. But of course, now that they've got this new paint, which means it doesn't actually need painting immediately again, it kind of falls away. But if you can imagine before they had that new paint, it's it, the same kind of idea. By the time we got to that stage, it really would have been time to, to just start again. So we can show how the language is developing as it's developing rather than waiting. Before we think about the actual work that we were doing, revising this um, essentially Victorian text, let's look at a, take a quick look at a typical OED entry. It's a word that you'll all probably be familiar with, pancake. We have the head word, pancake, followed by the part of speech. Um, then the pronunciation. All non-obsolete entries in the OED are now being given a British and American English pronunciation. If a word is a regional word as well, so perhaps say a South African word or a Scottish word or something like that, uh, we'll also give that pronunciation in that particular dialect um, or variety of English. Um, but as a matter of course, all non-obsolete words will get an American and a British uh, English pronunciation. Then we have where it's needed a forms list. This shows all the different spellings that the word may have um, taken through its introduction into the language to the present day. Uh, so we have a lot of Middle English uh, special Middle English spellings, some of which didn't last very long, some of which have carried on. You'll probably see that the spelling that we know now came in in the Middle English period. Um, M-E with a dash beside it means it's carried on from that point with continuous usage <coughs> to the present day. We also have an etymology showing where the word came from, in this case from pan plus cake, um, but we'll also show any cognates in other languages, so that is words that are similar in other languages that would show a similar development. Um, and you can see here there's a lot of um, various uh, German words um, and you know where, where that's appropriate we'll give that kind of information because people aren't just working on definitions they're working on the word origins as well. Then the all-important definition. Now this is only the first definition there are more in, there are more <coughs> definitions in this entry. Um, the OED as a historical dictionary presents the earliest sense of a word first and then works from that point onwards. In this case the most familiar and common in current English is is happens to be the earliest, but it could be in some entries that the first example, the, the first uh, sense rather, is actually an, an old obsolete word and that the current sense didn't develop till some time later. So that can sometimes be a bit confusing if you look at an entry up and you're expecting, the word battery for example I think initially obviously didn't mean something quite like the, the things that we put in um, you know, um, electrical appliances say. Um, and so sometimes it can look as if we don't have that sense, when actually it's just further down because of when it came into the language. And then the quotation paragraph, these examples showing the word actually used in real published examples. Now, this only goes down to 1619, but that's only because there wasn't enough room on one screen to show you the whole of this particular sense. Rest assured, we do have evidence for it after 1609, <laughs> 1619 rather. Um, and 
we're always trying to get the first example in English that we can find. And we always say current because you realise that you're only as good as the resources that you have available to you at any one time. So at the moment, um, anti-1400 is the first example that we've been able to find um, in English of pancakes, although some of the more eagle-eyed of you may have seen that in the etymology, it did actually say apparently attested earlier as a surname with Mark Pancake, uh, and that's in 1283, so I don't know whether he was somebody who made pancakes for the community or whatever, but we do have earlier evidence there of it being used as a surname. So that's uh, a typical OED entry. So what then are we actually doing to these entries? Well, to start with, we're not removing any of them. The aim of the dictionary is to present English as, you know, from when, as it's used. Therefore, if a word has gone in to the OED, we're never ever going to take it out again because we just aren't. It's, it's there for life. This means that, um, as well as some very familiar words like pancake, we're also going to have perhaps some more unfamiliar words. Now, some of you may know some of these, some of you may not. They are all obsolete, but they're all still in the Oxford English Dictionary. Our research hasn't uncovered any uh, 20th century or indeed now 21st century evidence for them, but that doesn't matter. The idea might be if you picked up a book written in, I don't know, 1620 or 1700, and you came across one of these words, you'd be able at least to look them up in the dictionary and find out exactly what they meant if it wasn't completely obvious <coughs> from the context. So once you're in, you're going to be staying in. And that's another great thing about um, working online, is that you don't have any space constraints. So, you know, a smaller dictionary may have to take some words out, but especially now that we're online, there, there's, I suppose there probably someone would tell me there's not an infinite amount of space, but there certainly, there certainly is in comparison to what you've got um, in a printed dictionary. So, as I said, we're updating the entries that were written in the first edition. And it's the first time that this has been done since the original publication. So an obvious area might be, would be adding extra later evidence. Obviously, at the point at which an entry was published, if the word continued to be used after that, we wouldn't be able to add any of that evidence because it didn't exist at that time. So that's an obvious place. But we're also adding earlier evidence where we can find it. Now, we're 100 years on from publication of many of these entries. Um, and although the earlier evidence clearly would have existed at the time when the entry was first published, it really would be a question of access. They would only really be available to the editors if they happened to have the book on their bookshelf or perhaps they were studying it or something like that. Nowadays with digitisation um, and the databases that we have, we can access these things with a click of the mouse. We're really lucky in that sense. It seems obvious that this would be the case, therefore, that we would find some earlier examples. And I've got one particularly spectacular one. This is a <coughs> photograph of the, um, the entry for open, uh, in the particular sense of a shop or business being available um, you know, for people to come in and, and use it. It was first included in one of the actual the supplements of the <coughs> OED, and it has a first citation date, I don't know if you can see, of 1824. So far, that that seems, that seems reasonable. When revision began in the entry, the various databases that we had meant that we could discover something quite earlier than that. We've taken it back about a thousand years to the old English times. I think that must be one of the most spectacular anti-datings, as we call them, that we have. Now, as I said, 
we've all um, these these texts must have existed at the time. It's just that they wouldn't have been accessible to the editors. So the 1824 um, example is still in there, but we've managed to not just antedate it with one, but we've actually managed to then supplement that antedating with lots of other quotations up until 1824. And then we've obviously taken it up into the present day. The last example we have there is from 2001. The idea isn't that we have a quotation from every single year, because that would just, well, that would be far too many. And also the idea isn't that we have to have one right up to the present day either. As long as we're showing that it's still in use in what we would consider you know, recent usage, then um, we can stop sometimes in the 1990s, sometimes in the 2000s. You know, the idea isn't that you have to have everything right bang up to today's date. So one of the most spectacular anti-datings that we've had, I think. Um, because these definitions were written about 100 years, 150 years ago, sometimes it can cause, the definition text can cause a modern reader a little bit of amusement, shall we say, which wouldn't uh, have, have existed then. <laughs> I'm going to show you an example now which, to the modern reader, does, well, I hope you laugh, seems quite funny. It's the second sense I'm talking about here, and this is a word called abbreviator. And it says, an officer in the court of Rome appointed as assistant to the vice-chancellor for drawing up the Pope's briefs <laughs> and producing petition, and it carries on. Now, we can all laugh because we all think of something in particular there. But at the time of initial publication, which incidentally would have been in the first ever fascicle, there would be nothing amusing about this at all. Briefs had not developed the modern meaning of underpants. So this would have been a completely normal way to actually, um, to actually describe this. But of course, to a modern reader, it does raise a little bit of a smile. So we have now, still use the word briefs, but <coughs> any of a number of prelates forming a college of the Roman Curia having the duty of drawing the Pope's bulls, briefs, and consistorial dec decrees in the correct form. So it's no longer sounding quite so funny. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's one of the things that we're doing. Uh, it's easy to poke fun in a way, um, but it, it just really just shows you how language does change and how briefs now, the first thing we might think of, would have been completely different from what it meant back then. Uh, another example which is maybe just more quaint than amusing is one I actually worked on when I first started, and it's prothodol, is how I always said it, but actually I think it's probably protodol. The definition here reads, a prime simpleton, a noodle of the first rank. <laughs> and I have to say there's a little part of me which felt guilty about revising this because it just, it just sounded so lovely. Um, it's not a particularly well-known word. In fact, we've got one, one example. It's, it's, an, it's an obsolete humorous word. Um, but it's a little bit quaint, really. So I revised it rather sadly. So it now says... An utter fool, a complete idiot. It's lost a little bit of the flavour, maybe, but, you know. Um, you may also spot that uh, we haven't done an awful lot of work to it, apart from the fact that we've changed the headword spelling. Um, as I said, prothodol before, which is how I thought it would be uh, said. It's an obsolete word, so we don't, give, um, we don't give a pronunciation because we can't be sure how the word would have been said. We can only guess. Um, but it's been normalised into what the modern um, spelling would be, at, which would also make it fit in etymologically with the other words of, of similar um, proto-combining form type. So, again, just a little bit, a little bit less quaint. Uh, 
Of course, sometimes the passage of time has meant that we've got more information available to us than we had before. Take the entry for nitrogen, first published in 1907. The definition reads, a permanent gas, symbol N, without colour, taste or smell, which forms about four-fifths of the atmosphere. It's not incredibly precise, really. It's not giving you that much information about it. But by the time the entry was revised in 2003, of course, we knew much more about it. And so we could give more information about it. Definition now being a lot more informative, a non-metallic chemical element, atomic number seven, which is a colourless, odourless gas with diatomic molecules, forms approximately four-fifths of the Earth's atmosphere, and which is also a constituent of numerous compounds, including ammonia, nitric acid, nitrates and proteins. So there's just more information available now, therefore we are able to give that. Not all of the definition text needs updating. Um, as I said, it's easy to poke fun at some of the rather humorous ones now. But, you know, they, it was a really, really good base text, and we sometimes don't bother changing the definition text at all because it's not necessary. Boyishly is an example of that, boyishly adverb. In a boyish manner, like a boy. Uh, what we have done here, though, is given some more evidence for it. Definition now remains exactly the same. And we've still got a first date of 1581. We haven't found any earlier evidence for this, but what we have found is more later evidence, and we filled in a gap that existed before. We had 1581, and then 1807 was our next date. We've now got quotations from 1695, 1720, 1758, etc., and we've brought it right up to the present day as well. But the definition text, regardless of the fact that it was written all those years ago, actually still remains because there was no need to change it. Um, so these are some of the ways in which we've been revising the text which already exists, but what about new words? <coughs> well, we're also preparing them and adding them to the OED, and this again is a real gain with the online publishing model. We're able to put the word in there as soon as we can. You need to bear in mind that the new word does not necessarily mean the latest slang word used by teenagers or the latest buzzword in technology. Really, it just means a word that's new to the dictionary. Therefore, most of the time, it's a lot older than you think, even though it's technically a new word. And, of course, we don't work in a vacuum anyway, so what the, word that we do, the, the work that we do does complement the work that the revision project is carrying on with. So sometimes they will see a missing sense in the development of a word, and it's our job then to make sure that sense is added to the dictionary. So it may be something that came in in the 17th century, but for our purposes, it's still a new word. So sometimes you'll be surprised because a word will have been around for years and it's not yet in the dictionary. Um, sometimes it'll be nothing that you've ever heard of. Our main concern is that before we add a new word, we have to have a good number of examples of its use in the language. It's got to have established some kind of history. It's unusual for a word to go into the OED, a new word, unless we have at least five years ex uh, worth of examples of it. And that's because once it goes in, it never comes out. Um, it has to have proved itself, if you like. You could argue that even if a word has made a massive splash for six months and then nobody uses it ever again, you could argue that that's still got its place in the dictionary. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, we say we want to have about five years of evidence for it. And although we're wanting to establish general currency, for technical words, obviously you're, perhaps your average person might not know it unless they happen to work in that particular area, but we would expect if people in that field were familiar with the word, then that works the same way as, as entering into general currency. So here's a few examples of some words that we've added recently. 
when is a new word not a new word? When it came in in 1682. <laughs> um, retrocess, it's a Scots law term, means to reconvey a right to a person, to restore a person to a former position or status. This was added um, as a new word in 2010, but it's new in inverted commas, obviously. Um, probably, and I don't know for sure, but probably, if you see at the end of it, it's got a, a cross-reference to retrocession. The chances are some a reviser was working on the entry for a retrocession and found the evidence of the verb, which we hadn't included yet, and that was why it was probably suggested to us. It gives a fuller, more complete picture of the language. But what about ones that might seem a little bit more modern? I'll expect a sharp intake of breath at some of these ones. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> this caused a furore when it was added in March 2011. But again, for a word that we, and I, uh, we do call these words, I know some people think it's an abbreviation or an initialism, we do call them words. Uh, people probably think this is very modern. Uh, people use it in text messaging, that kind of thing. Actually, 1917 was the first example we found in a letter that was written actually to Winston Churchill. Um, I hear that a new order of knighthood is on the tapping. OMG, oh my God, shower it on the Admiralty. <laughs> Clearly, it's an abbreviation standing for exactly the same thing that it's in use now. There's not an awful lot of evidence between 1917 and 1994. In fact, none that we could find. So perhaps it's a, an example of a recoinage, if you like. But this really did surprise people when um, we found this earlier evidence for it. That's not the reason we included it. You, can't, you can never tell when you start working on a word how far back it's going to go. But this was a particularly impressive one, I felt. Um, and nowadays it's maybe f obviously frequently used in the language of electronic communication. But if this was a letter, that's really the electronic, that's the email of its day, if you like. So it's perhaps not that surprising. Another one which caused a little bit of an upset <laughs> was LOL or LOL. Not as, not as early, unfortunately, but 1989, which I think still would surprise quite a few people. Um, uh, I've now seen some evidence of uh, a derivative of LOL, uh, lolarious, which <laughs> is ra rather nice, I think. And obviously working on the completely normal rules of English and how words are um, you know, formed of this time, obviously, on hilarious. Um, whether that catches on and ends up in the dictionary, I don't know. One of my favourites, we're often asked what our favourite word is, so apologies if someone's going to ask me that as a question, because this is one of them, is a word mondegreen, which people may not be familiar with the word, but I can almost guarantee that they will know what it actually means. It's a misunderstood or misinterpreted word or phrase, usually uh, because you've misheard and especially if it's the lyrics to a song. So one of the most famous ones, I suppose, is the Jimi Hendrix song, um, where he says, excuse me while I kiss the sky, and some people have heard it as kiss this guy. Um, so there is actually a word for it, and the best thing about this word is that it came from a Mondegreen itself. There was a ballad, the Bonnie Earl of Murray, which has the phrase, um, laid him on the green. And somebody misheard that as Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the word came about. So really, that, I think the reason it's my favourite is that I like the concept anyway, that this, you know, the, the concept that exists, but I love the fact that there's a word for it and that the word for it arose from exactly what it's describing. So that was, that was quite satisfying. Heart. 
when we included this, so it's the verb, heart, as in I heart the OED, <coughs> people thought that we'd added the symbol to the dictionary, which confused a lot of us because we were thinking, well, how would you go about looking up that symbol? Where would that appear in its alphabetical um, sequence? But no, we just added the sense of heart, um, meaning to, to love, to be fond of. Most commonly seen, I suppose, people think about the I heart New York t-shirts. Um, so we've added that. goes back to um, 19, well, the early 1980s. The first one is square bracketed because it's showing the, the idea rather than the actual um, word. But this was another addition which people got a little bit excited about. Um, <coughs> tweeting. This was the, uh, I will imagine, the first edition uh, uh, entry for tweet. Uh, an imitation of the note of a small bird, also repeated, so <coughs> Of course, it means something else as well now, so the picture changes slightly. It's now also, and I do stress the word also, we haven't, the, the other sense still exists, it's still used, it's still in there, but of course now most people will think of a posting made on the social networking site Twitter. 2006 is the first example um, that we've got for that. So showing that um, that's at least five years when we put it in. Some words will get in quicker than others because it's obvious, actually, that the word is going to stick around or is going to have been so successful, if you like, or so popular is not really the right word, but so ubiquitous that people would need, we'd need to have that in a dictionary so that people could look it up. I'm going to now um, show you one which will probably cause lots of consternation, and that's literally. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you may have heard about this. I, I talked quite a lot about this in the last couple of uh, the last few weeks. Literally, as well as meaning uh, what we all know it to mean, has taken on uh, a sense of actually meaning non-literally. So I literally died when he told me that. <laughs> that kind of thing. It really does cause quite a lot of anger amongst people. They really, really don't like this. Now, I can see those people's point, but really, all that's happening is the word is just changing. It doesn't mean that the initial well, it's not even actually the, the initial meaning. There's actually a, 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 an earlier meaning of literally. But it doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. Really, all it's being done is being used for effect. Um, and in much the same way as literally is in its what people think of as its true meaning. If I say this book literally has 500 pages, if it does have 500 pages, the word literally is not particularly adding anything to that. But if I say, you know, I literally laughed until I died, that's kind of emphasising how funny I found something. But it's not even new, and this is the interesting thing. You will note, before I, I go on, we should say that now one of the most common uses, although often considered irregular in standard English, as it reverses the original sense, we put that kind of information there so that people know that if they use this, some people in some contexts may not really think this is a good thing, so you would want to be careful. But Murray had it covered. Literally, this is uh, this is it was added in the um, the supplement. Well, no, sorry, it wasn't. The supplement added some extra modern examples, which is why I'm saying Murray had it covered. Yet you're seeing evidence from, uh, long after his death. That's because the supplements, as we said, sometimes added extra um, quotational evidence. This happened in this case, <coughs> but up until uh, the, all the evidence from the 20th century bef uh, before the 20th century was Murray's evidence, and 
it says now often used improperly, sorry, now often improperly used to indicate that some conventional <coughs> metaphorical or hyperbolical phrase is to be taken in the strongest admissible sense. So what we may have done is take it out and give it its own sense, but Murray had this sense covered because it went back to 18, what, the 1860s. That's when we first found an example of that. So it's not a new phenomenon. It doesn't make people, some people like it any better, but it's interesting that this has this particular sense of literally which causes so many people to, you know, throw their hands up in horror. Actually, Murray knew about it and, and, and covered it. So the OED so far. We've got 272,000 plus main entries. 111,000 of which are new or have been revised in some way. That's 617 lexical items, so that's headwords, compounds, phrases, all of that. And so far, over 3 million of the quotations showing the evidence um, have been included. But it's carrying on. This, is, this number will only go up and up and up. So what do you think he might have made of the work that we're doing today? Well, I like to think that after he became the initial shock of all the, the wonderful resources that we have, I think he really would have improved and embraced what we're doing. We're really only carrying on the great traditions that he established and, and followed. And I think this cartoon shows it quite nicely. This is what might have happened when John Simpson met James Murray. And if you can't read it, it says, well, John, it would certainly have saved on storage space. And that's him <laughs> looking at the OED on an iPad, I think. Um, so I think he would have, you know, he would have loved the fact that we're echoing the pioneering um, ways that he established. The OED Online was an early leader in the online market, and um, really, when we were preparing that, when we were, as we were preparing that initially, it was something that nobody else had really done in the same way that when the first dictionary um, edition of the dictionary was done, nobody had really done anything quite like that documenting the language as it's spoken and showing the development of a word from its entry into the language, um, showing how it might have changed, dropped out of usage, or how it's now going to be used in the, in the modern times. So with that, <laughs> I'll say a number of these from the OED. Um, I hope I've shown um, a little bit about the history of dictionaries, so that that placed the OED in its context. A little few examples of what we're actually doing today and that we're going to carry on the work that Murray started and who knows where we're going to be in 50 years time. So thank you very much.